The word of the Lord. And he came up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Praise God. You know, I, I truly uh, love our church. And one of the reasons is because how much we believe that the gospel can change anything, including the situation for 45 million fellow human beings. We've been asking uh, God in this series on Renew that he might renew us individually and corporately. Last week, we began the series by looking at how man got defined by sin and that Adam and Eve's rebellion, their sin against uh, their creator, made them unacceptable to him. And because they, they became unacceptable, we became unacceptable to him. We also talked about how that defines humanity, our unacceptableness. But we also said that because we desperately don't want people to know, we hide. And we were given hope. We saw that the promise that God left humanity, that he would again make us acceptable through his own son, Jesus Christ. This week, we look at a different story. We look at the story of the one who made us acceptable, Jesus. A story that, if believed, redefines humanity from one of unacceptableness to acceptableness. Our text calls that story good news. Did you see that in verse 18? As Andrew read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. The context of that passage is Jesus had a custom when he moved from town to town that wherever he was on Sabbath, which was a Saturday back then, he would enter the local synagogue and synagogues were places of teaching and worship. Most of them did not have a rabbi, no priest, no nobody representing. And so the lay people uh, were the leadership of the church, the leadership of the synagogue. And they had a custom, because they didn't have preachers, they didn't have an evangelist, that a man in the body would stand up on Saturday and read a portion of Scripture. You see... Not every synagogue had the entire Old Testament. 
because they were on these scrolls, which took a lot of time. Can you imagine taking the 66 uh, chapters as we know the book of Isaiah and handwriting those out, not with a fountain pen, but with a pen that you had to constantly dip in ink. And so synagogues would have portions. In this case, this particular synagogue in Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, had Isaiah. And so Jesus stood up and they gave him a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. And remember, in Jesus' day, they didn't have the benefit of turning to chapter 61, verse 1. That comes centuries later. Jesus unrolled it until he got to this portion and he read the portion that is being quoted to us in Luke chapter 4. And then it says in verse 20, all eyes fixed on Jesus. Because it was another custom that if you were going to read a passage of scripture, you were responsible for explaining what you just read. They were looking to Jesus to explain Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. That's why they were staring at him. And the shortest sermon ever recorded in the Bible and probably ever given, and you wish this was one, (laughs) is recorded for us in verse 21. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus calls this good news. And so first of all, it's news. It's the same kind of news uh, that General Gordon Granger gave Texans in June 19, 1865. Two months after the war between the states had ended. Lee had surrendered at Appomattox two months earlier. But Texas did not get the word. Texas didn't get the word because there were no major battles fought in Texas. In fact, many slave owners with their slaves migrated to Texas because it wasn't a battlefield. And East Texas grew cotton. And cotton was still king. So when General Granger with his 2,000 troops, got off the boats in Galveston Island, he announced to the slaves, who were still slaves, you are free. Can you imagine? 400 years of bondage, not only where you have known slavery, but your parents, your parents' parents, and your parents' parents' parents. They had never heard of the Emancipation Proclamation. They did that day. Or imagine that there's some of you old enough to remember April 1945, VE Day. Or maybe August 1945, VJ Day. Victory in Europe and victory in Japan. The end of a world war. Where more than 50, 60 million people died. Gospel, good news. It's news. It's not even a biblical word. The writers took a word that was predominantly used by the Greeks and then by the Romans. 
Caesar used the word gospel. Every time a Caesar came to power, he took his soldiers and sent them throughout the Roman Empire to the four corners to announce Augustus is Caesar. Bow the knee. Obey. It's news. But it's not just news, it's good news, he says. It's liberty to captives. Can you imagine in concentration camps in 1945 when Americans and Brits uh, came in and freed those concentration camps where everyone in those camps knew someone who had been exterminated? Sometimes the whole family. Imagine, he says, that it gave sight to the blind. Maybe you know somebody who has been blind for a long time and now they can do a complete transplant of the retina and give sight to the blind. Or maybe born deaf and they can give a a cochlear implant and the person can hear for the first time. Moving the oppressors for the oppressed. Isn't that what sometimes we have to go to war to do? Because oppressors are oppressing their own people. Killing and abusing their own people. Some translations, and ours does not have, says that he also came to heal the brokenhearted. It's good news. But here's something that most good news is not defined by. It's good news about a person. The context of Isaiah 61, Jews called that the servant of the Lord passage. That is, it was about the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. And if you go back to Isaiah 61, you can see that Jesus leaves part of the sentence out. You don't do that by accident. It's right in front of him. It's the end of the sentence in Isaiah 61 verse 2 that he stops and does not give. You do it to make a point. And Jesus is making a point. Where does our quotation of what what Jesus read end? It ends with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What does Isaiah 61 verse 2 go on and say? And the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus is making the point when he says this is being fulfilled in your presence. You want to be acceptable to God? You want to be loved and made a son or a daughter? That's going to require that God take his vengeance instead of empty it on you because you deserve it on me. Your freedom will come because of my captivity. What Jesus is saying here is the good news comes through the cross of his death. It was there that the day of vengeance was emptied upon Jesus. The only way you and I will ever have true joy in this life and the life to come is if we believe our acceptance was won by God through Jesus Christ and that it was his justice not his mercy. We live because he died. We are free because he submitted to captivity. We see because his eyes were shut. The prison door was open for us because death took him. And to prove it worked, God raised him from the dead. And we sing, our Redeemer lives.
Well, now you're ready to answer the question, who can hear the good news? Who's the good news for? I have to be very precise here, so listen carefully. The gospel is only for the spiritually poor. The gospel is only for the spiritually poor. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. No, you don't have to be literally poor in order to receive salvation. Nor if you are literally poor, does that guarantee that God owes you salvation. The gospel is good news only to those who understand themselves to be spiritually and morally outcast from God. Captives and blind, brokenhearted. The gospel is good news only to those who know they have nothing of value before God. All you need for the gospel for you is to see your need. Now, this is where I have to be careful. The gospel is only for those who see their spiritual poverty. But the gospel is especially for the actual poor. Over and over again in the Bible and throughout history, you see this pattern. That if you take a rich person and put him next to a poor person... If you take a powerful person and put her next to an oppressed person, if you take a man and you put him next to a woman, if you put an insider next to an outsider, it's almost always that the poor person, the oppressed person, the woman, the outsider gets the gospel before the rich person, the powerful person, the man and the insider. God, in his infinite wisdom has decided that the more you are pushed away, the more likely you are to hear the gospel and understand it and believe it. Counselor asked me this week, why did you pick a career that would require transparency? God has an amazing sense of irony. I told her that I didn't pick it. I wanted to be president. (laughs) And we know those guys don't have to be transparent. But he's so ironic. Who do you think he could use as a conduit but a person who knows their need? who grows up in a poverty, who was abused, who was oppressed, who do you think he would use as a conduit of his gospel? Who is it that recognizes that God's gift of salvation is all by grace, but those who have nothing to offer God but their need? The gospel comes, here's the third one. If the first one is the gospel only comes to those who see their spiritual need, 
spiritual poverty. The gospel comes especially to those who are actually poor. The gospel only comes through people who are willing to be both. Don't miss that. Because our example, because our Savior did both in order to save us. He left his throne. He left privilege to come here to be poor in order that you might be rich. Are you willing to lower your lifestyle to begin giving so radically that other people will think you have lost your mind? That's the Bible math. The more you understand the gospel, the more you see your spiritual poverty, the more you understand the grace that God has extended you, the more you'll be willing to impoverish yourself for others. That's why it's good news. Because it's not just good news for you. Because it is good news to you, it is good news for others. Don't miss that. Because it is good news to you, it becomes good news to others through you. So what are the implications of the gospel? If, if the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, and that it is given to those who spiritually recognize their poverty, but especially to those who are actually poor, and that the gospel comes through those who recognize that they are both, then what are the implications? There are literally hundreds of these. Let me give you five. Ecclesiastical. That's a long word to say, church. How did you leave your last church? Did you leave things unresolved? I hear people all the time come and join our church, and one of the things they tell me is often about the failings of their last church. I'm not naive to think that's not what happens to us. We're obligated, not necessarily to stay, but we're obligated to reconcile. How do you view other churches in our community? Do you see them as brothers and sisters? Partners? Or our competition? They're not reformed enough. They don't have our programs. The gospel says there are brothers and sisters. And they partner in the ministry of the gospel with us. Politically. Do you have more in common with people in your party than you do with other Christians? Especially Christians who are not part of your party. They're part of the other party. Has your political views become synonymous with being a Christian? Sometimes I move in circles that aren't 
conservative uh, evangelicals. And their churches tend to look at us the way often evangelicals feel about them. That is, sometimes we evangelicals think you can't be a Democrat and a Christian, a liberal Christian. Do you know they think that same thing about conservative Christians? That you can't be conservative and a Christian. Justice. What injustices do you see in our community, in our world? Do you see them? Do you hear them? It's one of the beauties of having Ellie. To let us know that there are 45 million fellow human beings that are still inside more slaves today than ever. It's not like we've eliminated slavery in 1865. Who do you see need to speak up for? Because their voice and their need is going unheard in our community. There are people who are experiencing injustice in our community. Who is going to speak up for them? Because they are not heard. Who is being oppressed or abused in our neighborhoods? We would think because we are more enlightened today that people could not experience abuse. But because we are more disconnected than we have ever been in our neighborhoods, we have no idea what's going on behind those doors. Economical. Who do you know that has more needs than resources? And you could argue, and it is true, you are not responsible for everyone. But we are responsible for everyone here. Are you aware of the needs of people that are in our church? Have you made us aware so those needs can be met? Relationally, this is the fifth one. How are your relationships here? Any relationships that you need to reconcile? Listen, you're going to, I'm going to spend eternity with each other. We might as well start working on it now. <laughs> Let me end with these three questions. You think I've already given you 50 questions to contemplate. Who in your life needs to hear the good news this week? Don't worry about coming up with a master plan. Just think of one person who needs to hear this good news about Jesus Christ making them acceptable to God. Who needs to see an implication, just one implication of the gospel this week that's in your world. And then thirdly, and I think this is important because the others make no sense or make no effect without this third question. Have you let the gospel... Have you let this good news become old news? Ho-hum news? How do you fix that? There's a letter in Revelation where God talks about a church called Ephesus. And the church had a tremendous history. Paul spent over two and a half years in that city. It had people like Irenaeus. It had a, a guy like Polycarp come to town. It had, it had John living there, the apostle, 
at one time. Rich in its theology, rich in its practice. And in, in the book of Revelation, he says, I have this against you, church in Ephesus. You've lost your first love. You remember what his prescription is for losing love? Remember. So how in the world do you remember? I think God gives us a great metaphor with fire. When we first moved to, to Annapolis, uh, our fireplace, uh, more heat went up the chimney than warmed the room. So we just stopped using it and put a heater in the fireplace and closed the flume so it would come out. But if you want a fire to burn bright, you have to stoke it. And when you stoke the fire, it does two things. It brings warmth and light. We need to stoke the fire of the gospel in our hearts. To remember what Christ has done for us. To remember our spiritual poverty. To remember what has happened to humanity. And what we do to one another as a result of being unacceptable because of sin. It's one of the hopes of our Renew Groups. Is that you and I will be renewed. And because we are renewed, then we will have something to give our community. We don't need to focus on the community yet. We need to stoke the fires of our own hearts. And then we'll ask the community to come and watch us burn. Because it'll be light and warmth for them too. We're going to pray in a moment, but I want to remind you of a dear saint in our church. The Sweeney's were one of the original families that met in 1964 that started our church. Yesterday, Ron Sweeney went home to be with the Lord. Lovely, sweet human being. He will be greatly missed by us. But we won't come close to how much Jerry, Tim, his son, their son, and Kevin... So please pray for Jerry and Tam and uh, for Kevin. On Wednesday, we will celebrate together uh, God's goodness uh, to us through Ron Sweeney. About 2.30 in the afternoon here in the sanctuary. So let's go in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you saw that humanity was defined by our sin. And that made us incredibly unacceptable to you. But rather than wiping us out and starting all over, which is certainly within your your privilege as the creator, when the creation went amok, you devised a plan to make us sons and daughters. To take away our unacceptableness. 
by taking your vengeance that was due our rebellion and emptying it upon your son. And so, Father, renew us. Stoke the fires of our hearts. Give us the warmth and the light of the gospel to see these implications for our lives, to begin to devote our lives to the gospel ministry that you have given us. And then, Father, allow our city to come watch us burn with this gospel. May our poverty become the conduit by which our community becomes rich in the good news. We also thank you for Ron Sweeney, who treasured the gospel in his heart and constantly proclaimed it to us and to his friends in the community. We thank you for a life lived well by your grace. And so, Father, give comfort to Jerry and to Tim and to Kevin and to anyone in this room and in this church and community that is grieving now. And may we gather together to tell stories and to enjoy the gift of grace you gave us in Ron Sweeney. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.